Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today is episode 89, and before we get into our main guest of the day, we're paying homage to somebody that I frankly have never heard of. But my dad, he has, and he's got more on that specific individual this week. Thank you, Duve. Welcome, everyone, to today's review of number 89. Only 265 cup starts for the 89, and none since 2006. Four wins for the number, two coming via Buck Baker, who we've remembered recently, one for Joe Lee Johnson, who we discussed previously as well. Remember, he was the inaugural winner of the World 600, driving the 89. And the other win was for Buddy Schumann, who won the first cup race held in Canada in 1952 at Stamford Park in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Schumann's NASCAR career is a tale of what might have been. Things were looking up for him going into the 1956 season. He had been tapped to head Ford's stock car program. However, he died in a hotel fire in November 1955 before the season started. Lewis Greer Schumann, or Buddy as he was known, was only 40 years old. In 1957, NASCAR established the Buddy Schumann Award to recognize individuals and organizations whose efforts and contributions helped advance the sport of stock car racing. Recipients of the award, now in its 64th year, have included Richard Petty, Rick Hendrick, Dave Marcus, and the pioneering motorsports writer and publisher, Chris Economaki. Loved Chris. Retired Atlanta Motor Speedway president, Ed Clark, was the 2020 recipient of the award. That's all for this abbreviated version. Back to you, Doof. The more you know. I didn't know that going into this episode, but now I know it, and we're only a couple minutes in. So thank you, Dad, and good timing on this one. A little shorter, a little sweeter. I like that. Anyways, we'll start this episode off, as we always do, with a good, old-fashioned So last week, we had my good friend and compadre, Dustin Albino, of formerly of Front Stretch and now of Jayski.com. He's from Buffalo. He likes Syracuse. He loves WWE. So I figured, why not have somebody that is almost a carbon copy of Dustin except as a little older, a little more established, and has a little prettier of a face. Sorry, Dustin. It's Alan Kavana. He loves the Bills. We talked about that. He loves WWE. We didn't really get into that too much. But he also loves Syracuse. We got into that. Alan is an insanely funny guy, was a really good friend to me for the past few years, and has been ever since. I appreciate his friendship. I appreciate his work. Um, We chatted about a lot of different things, his work with NASCAR and Fox these past few years. But the bulk of this episode that I think you guys will really enjoy are the stories that he told. It was just 
so funny to listen to from somebody that was doing some ugly deed by themselves in front of people to a dog named Shithead to the creepy story about how he met his wife and a whole lot more in this conversation for you guys to hear. I really, really enjoyed it and I hope you guys will too. So without further ado, here is the man, the myth, the legend, Syracuse Orange grad, Alan Kavana. The man needs no introduction, but I figured we had a son of Buffalo on last week. And although this guy is not necessarily a son of Buffalo, I consider it I consider him one basically by association. You know him. He's a Bills fanatic, a WWE fanatic, pit reporter extraordinaire, positive regression podcast host, Alan Kavana. Thank you for joining me today, Alan. It's great to catch up with you in the offseason. Yeah, Davey, thanks for having me on and mentioning all those uh, th- those good qualifications because it's a good time, even though there's no racing at the moment. It's, it's a good time to be a fan of the Bills and, and it's Royal Rumble season mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it, things are going in a positive direction. Good. Positive direction, not a positive regression. We like to hear that. Uh, Royal Rumble season. It's also playoff season. I, I was going to ask, like, how you're spending your time in the off season, but I assume it's just watching the Bills out on Sunday just whip up on the competition. That must be fun for a change. Look, for a change, I've been waiting 30-plus years, it felt feels like, for this to be happening again, at least 25. <sighs> so it's an odd feeling that they're, they're, they're good, they're quite competent, and uh, you, you just don't want to get your hopes up too much because they are looking really good on paper. And uh, But look, being a Bills fan, disappointment is just ingrained I get into it. your DNA. Like, you just know the bottom's going to drop out. And it's almost like you're not even affected by it when it does happen because you know, it's going to happen. I mean, you're just so, you're just so used to it. So we're just waiting for it. You don't want to get too high up because you're just waiting for the bottom to drop out. And when it, when it does happen, it's expected. So it doesn't even feel that bad. I totally get it to to a lesser extent. Like I've said that about being a DC sports fan, but recently caps won the Stanley cup. Nats won the World Series. Mystics won the WNBA title. The Valor, even though the AFL is now dead, they won the Arena Football League Championship. So we were the District of Disappointment, and now we're kind of the District of Champions, but also we still have the disappointment of the Wizards and the Washington football team, even though they made the playoffs. I know, I know. But Are you old enough to remember Michael Jordan on the Wizards? Barely. My dad told me that when I was like four maybe he took me to a game because he wanted me to see mj play in person but yeah no that was i mean i was alive yeah but it was way before i had any comprehension of who michael jordan was or what the wizards were it was it's hard for any of us to comprehend that that happened so yeah good company yeah i know one of our mutual friends andrew curlin it's crazy i don't know if he told you but his dad worked for the bulls like during oh yeah good story prime jordan his dad made a cameo in the last dance for a hot sec that was crazy oh yeah i saw him (laughs) it was so cool um, I also buried the lead here, Alan, so I apologize. You're the 1997 New England quarter midget heavy stock class champion. I stole that from Jason Schultz and Andrew on their Redhead Racing Radio podcast, which I listened to to prep for this. But that's burying the lead here. You are a champion, so I need to address you as such. Yes, thank you very much. Quarter midget <laughs> champion back in my youth. I, uh, I My standard line is uh, I like to think I ran out of money, not talent, or I mm-hmm. would still be going in this racing business. But uh, no, that's a great, fun way to grow up. Grew up racing quarter midgets in Connecticut and all around New England. And that's where a lot of us started. I mean, I was there the, the moment Joey Logano first came to a racetrack. 
I wow. was there. I mean, because we're from near the same place. So yeah. uh, a, bu a bunch of different names like Reed Sorensen raced there, Ryan Priest raced there. I mean, he, he was just a little younger than I am, but a lot of names that you've heard of in racing started quarter midgets up in the Northeast and we all raced together and somehow we all kept going one way or another in the, in the racing business. And uh, it's such a cool story to think back on. I think you also said like Doug Kobe, modified champ, Aaron Crocker back in the oh, yeah. day. Some other big names are there with you too. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy to think how much we've kept going and whether yeah. it's being in broadcasting or PR. Uh, I mean, somehow we all moved down south and <laughs> so, you know, there's Daytona 500 champions and, and modified champions. It's so crazy to think of. It's like the great migration from the northeast down to Charlotte. It's pretty funny. It is, though. and we're all still going and we all knew each other yeah. as kids. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I got grandparents in Connecticut. They're in Greenwich, so like not in the same area as where you grew up in Connecticut. But I get that the racing scene up there is a bit different because it's still on the East Coast, but it's just a different vibe than the Southeast or even the Mid-Atlantic where I'm at because, I mean, frankly, here there's not really a racing presence at all. But up there, modifieds every single weekend, sometimes every night of the week, local short track racing, dirt tracks, it is everywhere. And the fact that you had that really ingrained in you growing up. It's not really a surprise because that's what a lot of people did up there. Oh yeah. And look, I come from a racing family. My, my mm -hmm. grandfather was a, a, a racing champion, a yep. sprint car champion in the 1940s. So I, I come from, uh, I, I guess it's in my blood as you could say, but I mean, <laughs> I, there's great old pictures of him yeah. racing. What would have been, I mean, he was on the IndyCar path and just, Stuff like the war and raising a farm uh, got in the way, but I mean, he was well on that path. Like that's how good he was, according to records and according to the family stories. I mean, he was on that path, and it, it's just unbelievable to think about. And he made a cup start. He made a one yep. cup start in Thompson, 1951. 1951, yep. and that's something no one in my family knew. And someone, uh, I always forget their name, and I apologize, but uh, someone on Twitter who I conversate with, uh, they, they happen to put his name into racing reference, something I never thought to do, because why would I? And he is on racing reference, and he pops mm -hmm. up, and it was amazing to think about. I looked it up yesterday. George Thompson, one start, uh, not George Thompson, George Kavana <laughs> at Thompson, sorry. Yep. In 1951, he finished 13th. I think he started in the 30s, so that's a good positional net gain. Hell if I yeah. Say so myself. Hell yeah. <laughs> I found this interesting, though. I don't know if you saw. Under the money category on racing reference, it says 25, no dollar sign, nothing, but I guess he won 25 bucks that night. <laughs> I hope it went far. I'm still living off that so. money. <laughs> I hope it went further than your money in your racing career did, as you said. Yeah, it probably went to fund my racing career. And that's why, you probably. know, again, you run out of money, not talent. <laughs> I'd still be going if I had the millions. Oh, that's true. Do you, do you actually still have hundreds of trophies that you won back in the day? Do you actually have those still somewhere still? Not hundreds, unfortunately. At some point in life, you have to kind of downsize. Mm -hmm. I kept two. All I kept was two. But at one point, I did have hundreds. And it's just sad to think about. I think we ended up donating them back to the Silver City Quarter Midget Club oh. racetrack because they can take the pieces and stuff. But I kept right. two. I kept, uh, I think, two of the first wins I ever had. One from uh, when it was in Meriden, Connecticut, Silver City. And then the other one was at Little T Speedway, at Thompson Speedway up in Connecticut. It's a big track, obviously. Mm -hmm. But over in the corner, there is a little track for Quarter Midget. So I kept one from each racetrack. That's really cool. That's a good memento. What, when you yeah. set up your home office, you got to have those there in the, in the background so you can show people that you mean business. I will. And that's part of the reason I'm not really on camera. I apologize right now. It's just that uh, we, we moved. We finally, my wife and I finally lived together and we've moved into a home and that has mm -hmm. been a slow, slow process in terms of just 
combining all our stuff and getting everything. I mean, we lived without a couch for about a month. So that was fun wow. living on uh, like those concert chairs, the fold out ones you bring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those, that, that was our living room <laughs> for about a month. Takes me back to my frat days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what it felt like. And so yeah. we didn't have a couch. We didn't have a, we don't have a dining room table. I mean, little stuff like that. We're still waiting. We didn't have a bed for a long time. So we stayed in the guest room because we were waiting. You know, we, <laughs> we moved up in the world. I'm like, I'm buying a king size bed, baby. And uh, I want to live like a king. But then it didn't come for a month. So we were oh, sleeping yeah. in the guest room. And so it's slowly coming together. And my cool, uh, my cool Zoom room isn't quite up yet. Well, once it's up, we'll have to reconvene and show the people. But I'm glad that everything's going well for you. And that leads me into my next question. I have a whole section of my outline, Alan, about your wife, because the story <laughs> of you two meeting starts a whole avalanche of stuff that I'm very curious about. So let's get into that story for the people that may not be familiar. Your wife, Diane, CNN correspondent. She's great at what she does. Amazing, right? The story about how you two met, it shows persistence. It shows creativity. And as you have admitted, it shows a little bit of creepiness and stalkerness, but that's okay because it all worked out. And it all happened in a courtroom with a laptop and <laughs> Facebook and a lie, and the rest is history. Well, a little bit. Look, I mean, what I'm about to describe now would probably be seen as somewhat of a creepy crime. And mm -hmm. back then, but we're talking 2009, so it wasn't a crime then. No, I'm, uh, <laughs> so yes, my wife and I were both news journalists climbing the ladder. We uh, were both in the Charlotte market. I was in Charlotte. She was in a, a smaller city in uh, called Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I got the assignment to be down there that day. The guy who covered Rock Hill for my station wasn't in, so I had to go down there cover cover this court case and it was unfortunately about a, a gentleman a teacher a driver's ed teacher who would while teaching students would expose himself and that's what he was on trial for and Oof. it was just very unfortunate yeah. uh but <laughs> i walk into the courtroom and i see this stunningly beautiful reporter that i'd never seen nor met before and her name was diane and not only was she gorgeous, she was also really good at her job because while most, for those who have, fortunately haven't been to court a lot or haven't covered a lot of these things, court is often off limits in terms of what you can do with cameras and interviews and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, in South Carolina, it's a lawless place. There's apparently no <laughs> rules. And I didn't know this. So in the middle of whatever this trial is hearing, the judge takes a break. And in the middle of this, her, my wife, or my future wife, Diane and her, camera crew they start interviewing the defendant in the middle of the courtroom i'm like holy crap what is happening right now yes it was I, I blew my mind that this was happening but then then the competitiveness kicks in right because you're like oh my god if she has this interview exactly. I, I gotta have this interview so i rush over there and i like try to throw my microphone in and she's probably annoyed at that but we also get the interview the judge comes back out and everyone starts yelling like what are you doing like all this stuff but that's neither here nor there so uh, I don't know, you know, trials can be long or hearings. So we're just sitting there yeah. and this is before a lot of us had laptops or you know, it was, you know, standard, what have you. To it was just 2009. Keep... So it was, it was before yeah. everything was mainstream. Exactly. And so she had a laptop and I had to somehow email, I had to email my bosses back, tell them what was going on. So I asked to borrow her laptop so I could send an email to work, which is true. I mean, I needed to do that. But while I was also doing that, I went on to facebook.com and her page popped up and I friended myself. Therefore, <laughs> I was now her friend. This is really before, you know, the, uh, 
I don't know before the, the request or accept or what have you, but I yeah. friended myself. So when I would get back to my home computer, <laughs> I could accept the friend request or whatever, whatever it was back then. And then her and I would be friends and, uh, and it worked. I mean, she didn't know, I don't think she noticed. She's very popular, very cool. Like had a bunch of friends, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think she even noticed. And so for months we were Facebook friends, not that we communicated because I was too chicken to probably reach out. But mm-hmm. then when we, uh, <laughs> when we crossed paths again, uh, as you know, we it, it started building a relationship, what have you. And, uh, yeah, so that's how it goes. I friended her from unknowingly from her own computer and now we are married and she can't charge me with a crime. Well, I just got to say, bravo. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That that is truly perseverance at its finest. (laughs) I mean, I'm very happy with my girlfriend. We're coming up on two years, but for about 22, 23 years there, it was a little touch and go. You know, I I had to resort (laughs) to some some not so great things to do. You know what I mean? It's hard. Okay, so I see where you're coming from with that. Um, I'm I'm curious about a lot of different things with this story and with Diane. So like she wasn't aware that you actually did that in the immediacy. When did she get notified or figure out that you actually, when you were sending the email, you also friended yourself? When did that kick in for her? I mean, I don't think she really knew the story until I told her years later, because again, she's just pop. She's very popular, very well known. She was, yeah. uh, you know, very social. So she just had a bunch of friends. So I guess she figured at some time that she had just friended me or accepted my request or that's what fair. have you. She didn't know for a long time. That that's that's how it happened because uh, I I was just I guess yeah I was creepy and wanted to know more about her. So once we were Facebook friends, I was like looking on her page and I was like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. <laughs> And, uh, and I told her, I, I, I don't know exactly when she found out. I can't remember that part, but she didn't know at first. And it was at least months or years before she knew. Wow. Well, it all worked out for the best. This is, this is sliding into Instagram DMs before any of that was really a It thing, was. So. That's a great point. <laughs> you were ahead of your time. So w- when she did figure it out, either for herself or you told her, what was her reaction? Was she like funny about it or was she like, Wait, what? That's how we met? Was, yeah, what was by, it? by that point, I think we were well down the relationship path, yeah, yeah. so she couldn't back out. So <laughs> she, uh, she she knew of my ways and, and knew of all my negatives and was able to judge me based on that. So I think the positives outweighed the negatives by then. I, I would say so. And your guys' relationship is really cool, fun, genuine, though. I mean, for, I, I've never met your wife, but from seeing you guys interact like from the outside, right, it's it's interesting because you're both reporters working 24 seven in a very fast paced competitive industry and you've made long distance work for the last few years. And now it's the first time that you guys are living together under the same roof in Charlotte. And that is finally coming together, which is great. I'm very happy for you guys. But the fact that you guys have been able to make that work, it's probably a testament to both of you because working in this industry, the jobs that you guys both have, it kind of comes with the territory. You're always on the move. You're always going from place to place, doing different things. But you guys just made it work because that was the only thing that you had to do, right? Yeah, and that's that's a great way to put it. I mean, we're very fortunate. It didn't it didn't really seem weird to us, right? Living in it because exactly. everyone outside. It sounds weird to outsiders, not outsiders, but people who aren't news reporters or people who just don't under, don't understand this the life that we have both led, right? I mean, we have both had this career that to us, we, like we both understand it, right? To climb the ladder, you have to do crazy things or move different places. That like we, We've always known that getting into it and we knew that about each other when we got together. So it was never strange for us to when, you know, I, I proposed and the next day she got a contract offer from CNN. 
So it wasn't wow. and there's no part of any of us that were going to be like, no, don't take that job exactly. with CNN. Like, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was, yeah, let, all right, take it and we'll figure it out. Yeah. And, um, and then that, so yeah, that was five years. I mean, we got the five, we lived apart for five years in terms of, I made a lot of drives up to DC. She made a lot mm -hmm. of drives down to, uh, down just back to Charlotte. And then she moved to Atlanta. That was a little closer. And, I think I figured it out in our time apart. It was about 60,000 plus miles. I drove, that was just me. And that, that was just miles on the car. Wow. And that didn't include any miles that she drove. That didn't include the times we flew Oof. or the times we met up in a different city. But uh, it, was a, it was a commitment. It was a journey. But uh, it, we both got to flourish professionally and personally. Sure, we, I bet, you know, we missed out on a lot of stuff, I'm sure. But we're getting to do that now. And very thankful to CNN that they were kind enough to... Uh, open the Charlotte bureau and, and kind of make this work and we're going to do it. It's crazy. Wow. That's a lot of miles. Gotta say, that's, yeah. I mean, what, probably seven, 8,000 ish per year for those five years or so. Sounds about right. I mean, it was a six hour journey each uh -huh. time, you know, one way to DC and then almost a four hour journey to Atlanta each time. And, uh, it got crazy. And then the first time we ever really lived together, like full time really was the pandemic. It was crazy. I mean, not to find positives in the pandemic, yeah. but we were, you know, I'd be making the trip back and forth because I'd have to be up in, at the Charlotte studios at least once, twice a week, but mm -hmm. then that stopped. And then, so I just stayed in Atlanta and that was the first time we lived together in a one bedroom apartment. It was crazy. Yeah. Cause I read a story prepping for it when um, the cup series or I think it was all three series, but they were in Atlanta and, you know, you were staying with her and it was like the first time in a while that you guys had to have like a chill weekend actually living together and you were there doing your job and she was doing hers obviously as well. But it was like you guys woke up, you went to work, you came home, you enjoyed life as a couple and like you hadn't had that for a while. So that had to be a nice change of pace. <laughs> It was. And then, and then the bottom fell out of the season, right? It fell out of the world really. Yeah. But yeah, that was the, I was in Atlanta. It was like, a, it was like another home race for me, right? I was going to wake up in my right. apartment and drive to the track. And if you remember there was that, that Friday was so squirrely. There was all sorts of, I don't know, rumors or unofficial schedule changes. We got mm -hmm. the call that they were going to race the truck race. It sounds crazy now. I mean, at that, that moment <laughs> there, like the plan was to race the truck race that Friday without practice, without qualifying, which seemed like the craziest idea in the it world. Did. Like, what are you talking about? How yeah. could they do a race without ever being on the track before? <laughs> there, there's no way that could happen. What a weird change we're about to have. And now and, look oh at my, us. <laughs> and now look at us. Oh my, it's just so funny to think back on that one day, how revolutionary uh, dropping the green flag without a moment of practice would have been. And now it's just the standard and uh, we probably will never go back, uh, you know, uh, Aside from a few times. Yeah, I was going to say that that's right. It is the standard. And besides, you know, a few races this year that are big ones or new venues, there's not going to be any practice or qualifying. And it probably will stay that way for the foreseeable future, at least. So it's it's crazy to see like a moment in time, you know, 10 months ago or whatever it was, how foreign and how ridiculous an idea seemed. And then just fast forward and now to see how it's commonplace just shows you the stuff changes like that. It, it's insanely quick. So if you're forced to, especially. Yeah, absolutely. So I know she's covered some NASCAR and been to some races here and there. Obviously, being in Atlanta, you got the speedway there and being with you. I'm sure you've dragged her to a few races. What does she think of it? Does she have a favorite driver? How does she feel about NASCAR? 
Oh, she loves it. She loves it. Maybe not, you know, not the competitive side or yeah, I mean, yeah, she'll yeah. watch it with me. She likes the end. Does she want to watch 500 miles uh, on a, of a Texas race on, I don't. on a random Sunday? Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> but uh, she was in, remember, I mean, Charlotte, remember, like I said, she was very, very social, knew exactly. a lot of people. Uh, so, you know, back in the day, there, there was a lot of fun to be had at NASCAR races and she ran in, in those fun circles. And so she knew the people more than she knew the racing. Right. Yeah. So, uh, she would end up at, you know, having a lot of fun with the, with the people and, uh, knowing kind of the social side of it. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, but no, she's learned to embrace it and, uh, knows my passion and my love for it. And we've been to a lot of tracks. And so I, I'm yeah. proud of her. We covered, we were both at the Daytona 500 last year. Cause she was there to cover the president. I was there to obviously cover the oh, yeah. race. So that was cool to cover the 500 together. Our first vacation together suspiciously we wanted to go to california and drive the coast like all the way down mm -hmm. like from san francisco all the way down to la yeah and would you believe i scheduled the time i scheduled the flight was the same weekend as the sonoma race davy i mean ah uh, the, what a coincidence it how was how does that work i don't know it just worked out luckily <laughs> that the, the same damn time i scheduled there happened to be a nascar race out wow. there so we went to sonoma together <laughs> that was a lot of fun but she's been to a lot of tracks Sonoma. i'm trying to think sonoma texas bristol what charlotte daytona talladega i brought her to for dale jr's last race nice uh she's been to a lot of racetracks and uh, i'm proud she of gets her it. <laughs> yeah definitely so did you have a favorite driver favorite track anything like that i'm sure she watches all the truck races now Oh, absolutely. Uh, no real favorite. I don't think she has a favorite driver or anyone she, she definitely roots for. Uh, she likes watching the trucks. She likes the young kids, right? I mean, that's what yeah. I like about the trucks too, is that, you know, you see these young personalities, you see them kind of develop uh, like Raphael Lassard and his, his accent and his backstory. She yeah. liked that. You know, she, she, she likes the personalities uh, more than, you know, well, I'll see like the driving personality, if you will, or the driving right. talent. She'll, she'll see like the interviews and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, those, that's, that's how she picks her favorite drivers. <laughs> So now that you guys are living together in Charlotte, you obviously Syracuse graduate. We know you're loud and proud about that. She went to Tennessee. Is that correct? Correct. So is your house just completely orange? Like every single curtain, bed, wall space, is it all orange all the time? There's a lot of orange in the household. Like our coffee maker's <laughs> orange. So it, it's Good. fun. That's another, I mean, uh, another benefit of, uh, yeah, of being with her is that she can appreciate the color orange, which some people don't, but we, we embrace <laughs> it. Different shades, but a lot of gifts, you know, a lot of whatever can be orange and we both yes. definitely appreciate it. So it was, a, it was a good match for us. It's true. Our new president elect can appreciate orange too. So we got that. Hell yeah. Us, so. I mean, and look, not to get into politics, but I was a one issue voter and my issue was getting a Syracuse alum in the white house. Like That's how cool fair. is it? There's no better flex than that. I mean, really, <laughs> what, what, how cool is it to have a Syracuse alum to brag on that for the next four years? I mean, it, that was my one issue. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> no, that that's fair. If there's ever a Michigan State alum up to run for president, right? I mean, politics aside, I feel like I just have to just swallow you my pride and vote for the person. You can't top that. I mean, no. <laughs> anyone could be sports. Oh, yeah, we beat you in this. Well, yeah, look at right. the White House, buddy. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 1600 Pennsylvania down the street from me here. Like, oh, man. If, if you thought good. I was in, a, uh, you know, a obnoxious Syracuse fan now, just wait until January 20th. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can wait or if I can't wait. I don't know, but I, know, I think right? it'll be fun to watch regardless. Um, it, I mean, even though you're a Syracuse guy at heart, like knowing Tennessee stuff, that probably gives you something to talk about with Bubba and you can sing Rocky Top together. That must be fun. 
Absolutely. That's one of the one of, one of the early places. I mean, I kind of got to know him is that we were I, I was at a Tennessee game with my wife because we went up there and I noticed, I think, on Twitter that he was there, too. And mm -hmm. so we started like DMing each other and we we're like, oh, shoot, we're both here. And, uh, and you know, and then we just got to conversating and uh, that definitely helped build, you know, part, a good relationship. Yeah. And the, the fact that he's a Tennessee fan, uh, it, it's inspired some good conversations over the years. So I know that Newhouse, the school there, I mean, it speaks for itself. Like I, I wanted to go to Syracuse. It was one of my top choices. I got waitlisted from there. Plus the money to go there is very, very expensive. Um, yeah. And I have no regrets going to Michigan State. Great time. But Newhouse speaks for itself. It really does. Um, your experience overall at Syracuse, how was it? What sticks out from an academic side, from a social side? And I really just want you to talk about being there for Carmelo Anthony and the 2000 national Damn. title, because that's all I really Yeah. Care. Oh, my God. What a privilege as just a, <laughs> a sports fan in general. I mean, look, they've won one national championship, right? And to say I was at school there for that experience, I mean, it makes up, almost makes up for all the, the bitter losses of all the other teams and racers that I like in my life. But yeah. uh, no, that, that was just a magical time. I mean, to be there Crazy. for that team and to be there for Melo and um, my biggest regret david you're still young so just always just make the dumb trip i did not go to the final four and wow I'll always i will always regret that not Damn. going to the final four uh because i think i had something stupid like a class right i mean i was like i can't miss this class or yeah. there's a test hindsight's 2020 oh such a stupid decision but it was fun <laughs> to be on campus obviously they packed yeah. about twenty thousand of us in the dome to watch to watch the game and then to be there and celebrate the main drag there is called Marshall Street. So to be mm -hmm. there, that that was cool. Great memory. Uh, great school. I mean, you have to. It's it really is more of I, again. I like you were saying. I went there because of the reputation. You look up any a lot of successful broadcasters. I mean, it's just got a long history and yeah. and that alumni is what makes it strong, right? I mean, that's what you Absolutely. go there for to get into that network. But what you have there, I always thought of it like a trade school because that really what that's what it was to me anyway. That's how I treated it because all the classes were here's the equipment, you know, here's a kick in the ass. I could go outside and do it, right? Yeah. I mean, that was that was the education. Brave the and elements then, and do it, by the way. Oh yeah, I mean, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere <laughs> exactly. because you're you're learning camera equipment and how to you know set up stuff when it's uh, just the worst conditions ever. There, I mean, it's a yeah. terrible place in terms of weather. You have to <laughs> deal with that. But again, if you can thrive there or at least survive there, you can uh, you can do just about anything. Yeah. And it, and that's what it was to me. It was a trade school of getting out, learning, and doing. Because as students, you put on newscasts and you had. Uh, people who were highly successful people had careers in journalism who came back to teach and, and really put you through the ringer. Like we'd have current events quizzes or grammar quizzes. If you got one wrong, you got an F because the only rule in journalism is you can't be wrong. Right. I mean, so it, it was little things like that is, uh, is what I remember just being put through the ringer and really treating it like a trade school and learning how to do my trade. Uh, and it wasn't so much even on the television side there. Mm -hmm. What obviously I'm biased, but the best student run newspaper in all of America is the daily orange. And I spent a lot of time as a newspaper writer, because if you can learn to write, I think that really is the bedrock of everything, television, Bingo. newspaper, internet, what, what have you. So I really wanted to focus and hone my writing skills and cover a beat, you know, learning how to cover a beat and, and, and keep track of a team and making relationships and interviewing all the time, covering games, uh, the fastest way and best way for me to do that was to work for the paper, honestly, 
And if you can learn how to write well, then you can apply it to television, no problem. I'm very glad you said that just from like a selfish standpoint, because I, I've tried to make that the foundation and the bedrock of, you know, branding myself as a multimedia journalist and reporter, because I've, I've told people, you know, like if you can write, that means that you can talk, you can be good on camera, you can be eloquent enough to like be good in whatever facet that you're put in. So mm. uh, that's the, like, that's what I've tried to do the past few years, especially like when I was in school and then graduating after school, I've always tried to keep that foundation, the base and to keep an avenue, you know, I do it at front stretch of writing because to keep that tool in your toolbox, very sharp, like that should be the sharpest thing that you have because it's the foundation of everything. And it kind of leads me into another question that I had or just point to talk about the, st the, the different amount of work that you did with NASCAR and Fox. One thing that stood out to me besides your pit reporting, which was phenomenal, was the essays that you wrote. And I noticed those specifically because I noticed that a lot of different reporters for whether it be Fox, NBC, CBS, whatever. I mean, you know, you have your Tom Rinaldi's who make you cry every Saturday morning on college game day. And you can have your Gene Wojciechowski's and you can have Adam Schefter or Michael Wilbon like write an essay about the Bears making the playoffs, whatever. But one thing with all of those different reporters is very constant. And it's that not that they necessarily had a strict, strong, only background in writing, but it's that they're damn good at writing. And I noticed that specifically in your essays for Race Hub, whether it was about Jeff Gordon, your boy Rusty, which we'll talk about in a minute. But mm -hmm. I have noticed that and I'm and it makes sense now because I didn't know that you work with the newspaper at Syracuse. But that foundation, like you said, I mean, they're the best newspaper that colleges have in the well, nation. So to have that foundation argue, and that writing, I think that shows through in your work. I really do. Well, thank you. And uh, and it really is. Look, I mean, for any broadcaster to, to the ability to uh, write tight. Right. I mean, I remember uh, the one rule I was given, like, you know, right back then it was like 500 word article or 600 word article. Uh, the boss man told me to write a great guy named Chris Snow. I'll never forget this. He just said, all right, write the article. And then I submitted the article to him, you know, for approval. And before he even read it, he hands it back to me and goes, OK, now take 100 words out of it and say the same thing. And I was like, what? It's like, take what you just wrote, figure out 100 words to eliminate, and then resubmit it back to me, and then I'll read it. And I was like, what is this? And But it, it, <laughs> it, it, it was just an exercise to make you write shorter, yeah. make you write tighter, tighter sentences, shorter communication. That's better communication. Defective, and and yeah. that translates into whether it's me talking on television, whether it's me writing a broadcast story, uh, that, that kind of rule translates into any form of communication. So it was that kind of foundation. It doesn't have to just be writing for newspaper. Yeah. Uh, I, I like Scott Van Pelt a lot. I mean, a lot of people do, but Love when you... Him. Yeah, when you watch him talking those those minute or long uh, kind of spiels that he does, not spiels, but when he's talking about something like the best thing I saw today or like he goes off thing, for, yeah. yeah, one big thing. I mean, that's all writing on his part. That's not off mm -hmm. the top of his head. That, that That is him writing and likely writing quickly. And he's obviously a good writer at what he does. And that comes with just practice. And uh, I'm, for, I'm glad I, I started with that bedrock of writing and then moving into the broadcasting side. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I know selfishly that's something that I can improve upon because and, and it's doing this practice stuff, too. Right. I mean, whether it's podcasting, asking questions in press conferences, whatever, I've noticed that I don't condense things well. And that's a work in progress for me. So I, I think that'll be something that I try to work on this upcoming year. And also as an aside, I know we're kind of flipping all over here, but make the trip. You talked about that. I actually did 
make the trip, not to a Final Four, but to a Sweet 16 and Elite Eight game in Syracuse when Michigan State was playing their regional matchup against Oklahoma and Louisville in the Carrier Dome. So, like, my roommate's friend's dad was a booster, and then he couldn't go, so he gave us his tickets, which were right behind the Michigan State bench, team hotel, everything. So my experience at Syracuse is nothing short of phenomenal because we saw two big wins, trip to the Final Four, and we didn't get snowed in or anything. So it was great all around. Oh, yeah, that that you, you hit the trifecta <laughs> there, especially not yeah. getting snowed in. But uh, that's an awesome experience. Great venue, yeah. the Carrier Dome, especially. I don't know if it was as packed as it would have been for like a Syracuse Georgetown game yeah. or a Syracuse Duke game, but I'm sure there were a lot of people there, and it's pretty cavernous. It's pretty awesome to be there. It was. Yeah. I, I, I'd seen it on TV and everything. And I'm just like, eh, it is what it is. And I got there. I was like, Oh, this place is actually pretty cool. It's large, yeah. very large. I'm glad you made the trip. That was very important. Make the trip. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, let's get into your, the start of your career and kind of the steps that you took to get to where you are started in Joplin, Missouri. NASCAR fans may know that city because that's the home of Jamie McMurray, of course. Uh, and I know that while you were there, you went to some races at Kansas. You begged the sports people who were like, hey, Jamie McMurray's there. Um, so you went there, you covered that, and you gained a lot of valuable experience there, specifically in the form of like ambushing people in the garage, <laughs> which back then was a big no-no and now it's kind of is a big no-no. No-no. But you didn't know any better, so you did it, and it worked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the to think back on just – Again, lawlessness, if you will. But yeah, I didn't know. Now you're just so ingrained. And you, David, you're you're part of the garage. You know. I mean, if you want to talk to drivers, there are predetermined times, or you call their PR person, and and you set up an interview. I didn't know any of this. All I you know, I was a news guy. I wanted to be a NASCAR guy, but I was a news guy. That you know, if you go see the. The, the the bad politician or the, the dirty criminal on the street you like run up on him and try to you know get him on camera or whatever right i mean you have to get yeah. the interview and that was the goal you got to get him on camera and so i remember going up to kansas uh the speedway because i convinced uh the sports department who didn't know much about nascar i was like oh let me go up there we'll do a story on mcmurray all this stuff they're like sure go up there fine and um and then getting there to learn that like I had already somehow missed the the media availabilities for the weekend. I'm like, excuse me mm-hmm. for the weekend? Like, I'm not going to be able to talk to him. Like, you know, in my mind, I was like, that's impossible. That can't happen. I can't come back with nothing. We're, we're up here to talk yeah. to Jamie McMurray. That's ridiculous. So then it just became my photographer and I running around the garage, like I think mid practice, right. Trying to get them climbing out of their cars, like just totally uh, no rules, like breaking any informal rules. Yeah. Lawless. And, but we got, you know, talk to them right before they qual they would crawl in before qualifying. Like none of these are approved, you know, media opportunity times. Like (laughs) I didn't check with any PR people because I didn't know that's what you had to do. I didn't know any of that thing existed. But we got it done, man. Like we, you know, I interviewed yeah. Rusty, Jamie McMurray, Dale Earnhardt Jr. I think coming out of the bathroom or something. I mean, it, it was just you got to get it done, and then uh, that that was my mindset, and that's how I hustled and did it, and it worked. You did get it done, and that that's all that matters at the end of the day. As long as your bosses are happy, as long as you're happy, and again, like you know, that proves that you have what it takes because if you're put in a precarious situation and you got to think on your feet, you got to think quick, which you did. It worked out really well, and that propelled you to one of your next stops, which was Evansville, Indiana. I admittedly do not know a whole lot about Evansville other than they have a D1 basketball team that I've heard of, but 
but I don't really know much else. So like, aces. what else is there to do there? I don't know. I mean, nothing really. I mean, it's it's another small. It's a great. It's a nice small uh-huh. Midwestern city on the banks of the Ohio River. <laughs> it's on the border of Kentucky, so you go to Owensboro, Kentucky, a lot, okay. which is where the Waltrips are yep. from, and a lot of people, Jeremy Mayfield, the Greens, a lot of racing culture out there. And it's uh, what do we say about Evansville? It's like two hours from everywhere. It's two hours from Louisville. It's two hours from Indianapolis. Okay. It's two hours from St. Louis, and it's about two and a half hours from Nashville. So if you ever wanted to go someplace, Evansville, you could get out of there real quick. Uh, but no, it was, it was a great place. I mean, it was just a step. You got to climb the ladder, right? Yep. I mean, it's not like I had many uh, options. So climb the ladder, became a morning anchor, and it was close enough to the brickyard where I did the same thing, convinced the sports department to let us go up there, uh, cut some cut some stories and bring them back. And it was great. And I took advantage, full advantage of that. And, uh, you know, that's what I try to do just at every, every single step is because I was always a news guy, right? I was mm-hmm. always chasing, you know, murders, fires, uh, school board meetings, all that stuff. And uh, so, but when I had the opportunity, I would do some NASCAR and it worked out. Because that was always the goal. That was something that I had written down um, because, you know, like with all these different stops, was it more so you're moving up in the markets or was it more so you're trying to position yourself and whenever you're there, to get into NASCAR full time, because that was the goal. And, you know, for me, like that is the goal. But I know for a lot of other people that are in local news and working their way up, and they may perhaps land in NASCAR, and it wasn't really on the radar. But that's not the case for you. Like it was always on your radar. It was always top of mind. You were always going out of your way to try to get to the racetrack to do your job with the station that you were at. And it wound up working out in your favor down the road, because you got that full time job in the sport. So it all worked out. Yeah. And I think that's always benefited me is that I had one goal. I was very stubborn. I, I had one goal and one goal only. And, and some people, you know, get into the news business and, and they don't, not goal list, but they don't know what the end game is, right? They're, yeah. are, are they just taking a job, moving to a different city, you know, for what? Uh, but for me, I always had this one thing in mind and therefore it was a great carrot out there that what and this is what I tell young broadcasters as well is like there, there's always especially if you want to get into a certain sport or NASCAR or what have you like someone will always I will never know as much about NASCAR as like Larry Mack does right there will always be someone who knows so much more about NASCAR than I do but what so what can I do I can be the best broadcaster out there right I can be the most prepared um, do it to the best of my ability, the best writer, what have you, and also have that NASCAR knowledge. That is what will eventually get me hired. Like that, that is the mantra I kept telling to myself is that I can know the NASCAR side of it, but if I'm not a good broadcaster, I'll never get anywhere near a television job, especially, you know, on a big network. So that that's the goal. So even though I was doing news in Evansville and in Joplin, I, I was honing my craft, right? You just have to put in those 10,000 hours of being on camera and writing stories and getting yourself in these different scenarios, being live on television. Believe me, you want to be bad somewhere else. You don't want to be bad when you show up on network television yeah. because people, a lot of people realize you suck, but you want to be bad in the smallest place possible. And mm-hmm. that's what kind of climbing the ladder is. Of course, everybody's terrible at the beginning. So when I was in Joplin, pretty bad, but you get better at it. And that's what those early jobs were, was getting better at it. And the goal was always to get to Charlotte because that was the home of NASCAR. One way or the other, I figured if I could get to Charlotte, I could work from the inside. And uh, again, it worked, man. Like I got to Charlotte and uh, that I started working from the inside. You did. And uh, th- that's really sound advice. Though. I'm going to, I'm going to take that, absorb it a little bit and try to emulate that as well. And now I will make the seamless transition from 
very, very inquisitive, introspective, informative advice and career trajectory to asking you to tell the story about the dog named Shithead. Oh, <laughs> that, hey, that local news, man. There's no better there, There's no better reality show than local news. No, there is not. And this included going to Union County, Kentucky. You know, sometimes you get tips, right? So this tip comes into the newsroom. Someone has buried their dog in the local cemetery. And they're like, what? That's weird. Doesn't stop there. The dog's name is Shithead. <laughs> or, um, excuse me? Yes, someone has buried their dog in the local cemetery, and its name is Shithead, and it has a tombstone. And so it says, it says Shithead in our public local cemetery. And we're like, what? So, you know, this is Union County, backwoods, Kentucky. Sorry, Kentucky. Union County, Kentucky. We're like, we got to go check this out. (laughs) So we go check it out. We get there, and we're like, you know, it's a big graveyard. It's a... uh, so we're like, how are we going to find this thing? Oh my goodness. You know, we were looking through all the yeah. stones, couldn't really find it at first. And then out in the distance, there's a little area dedicated to veterans. There's a flagpole. And at the bottom of the flagpole, we see this one headstone. <laughs> and we're like, no, it can't be that one. We go up to the headstone and would you believe it's this beautiful headstone, granite headstone engraved with the word in loving memory of shithead. <laughs> and then a picture of little shithead, the dog. And and then we interviewed the lady, the the, the owner of Shithead, oh, who was, who, I she was just she really loved her dog. She said they deserve the same rights that people do. She owned the plot. She owned the plot like she had bought the plot for. I, I guess what you would think it would be for herself one day. I don't know, but she owned the plot. So you know the the the, the local uh, the county government or whatever they were like throwing their hands up. They're like, I don't know what we can do. She owns the plot. Like I was like, what? So, but yeah, some people in the county were not happy that a dog named Shithead was buried with a tombstone that <laughs> Shithead the dog. And she was a great character, great sound bites, uh, very, very memorable. One that I will never forget. I'm just, there's a lot to unpack there as well. I mean, if, if you love your dog so much, why would you name it Shithead? I, I think there was an 80s movie called The Jerk that had a dog named yes, Shithead. Yes, there was. My mom out. loves that movie, actually. Yes. Okay. I don't know if they, that, that was the direct correlation or if they just like calling the dog that. I mean, I call <laughs> my dog some funny names, too, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, never yeah. Shithead. Yeah, well, it's memorable for sure. We know that. <laughs> so then, Alan, Charlotte, 2008, you move there. You're officially in NASCAR country, and we talked about how, you know, you've always had this carrot dangling of, like, get to Charlotte, work in NASCAR full-time, But when you were there, you weren't necessarily working in NASCAR. You were still with local news in Charlotte, and you had the luxury of everything being there at your disposal. And one of the things that kind of fell into your lap in a way, but also you did all the groundwork for, and you were there at the right place at the right time, and you killed it, as you said in the Redhead Racing Radio podcast, was with Jeremy Mayfield. And for those of you that don't remember, I barely remember, to be honest. But, you know, looking back on it, it's when Jeremy Mayfield tested positive for amphetamines, methamphetamines, methamphetamines, methamphetamines. And um, he was suspended from NASCAR. There was a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of he said, she said. And you basically showed up to his door. He wasn't there, but then he pulled up in his truck and you guys were rolling. I think you had your lavalier mic kind of like pulled up to his window and yeah, like you said, you killed it, asked a few quick, really good questions, got good answers, and that really kind of put you on the map. 
It did in terms of the NASCAR world, right. that and Twitter, that, that, that worked out again. This was 2009. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Twitter was still small, um, in a sm- still a small audience, yeah. but on, on Twitter, I was a NASCAR guy. I was only a NASCAR guy. And so that, you know, I was able to c- conversate and, and talk with people and it was great talking with like-minded people. So on Twitter, I was only a NASCAR person, mm-hmm. but my real job was a news reporter. And like I said, in Charlotte, they knew me when I walked into that newsroom that I love NASCAR. I was the NASCAR guy. And here I was in Charlotte where it's not only a sport. I mean, it's a way of living, right? It it's is. the economy. It's the, it's a billion dollar industry, thousands of jobs. I like that you said it's an NASCAR. ecosystem. That's what it is. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. I did myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So any, t- so I could pitch NASCAR stories, yeah. b- but from a business angle or from a job angle, like a 2008, obviously, you know, killed the economy and stuff. So I did a lot of stories about NASCAR jobs and, and, and the sport itself and, and just, uh, yeah, the bubble that we all live in here. And so when a NASCAR driver, Jeremy Mayfield tested positive for methamphetamine, I mean, the, the little radars go up in the newsroom because it's just a big deal. NASCAR is a big deal here. Uh, and then it kind of got really kind of odd and mired in uh, just it was just an odd story because he denied this. Right. And there was all this back and forth of him denying and saying NASCAR set him up and Brian France set him up. And so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we did what local news people do. You know, you go out, you try to talk to the guy. Now, even though I knew he probably wasn't going to talk to us. These, these drivers have big homes, gates, you know, and everything. And they set far back. So we were just going to do our local news thing. Right. And it was like, Oh, I came to Jeremy Mayfield's house and no one was home. <laughs> right. You know, those dumb things. So I was all wired up to do that. And just as we were wrapping that up, would you believe a pickup truck pulls into the driveway guy rolls down his window and it's Jeremy freaking Mayfield. <laughs> and he hadn't talked to anybody at this point. Yeah. And there we were with a live mic, a, a hot camera, and uh, yeah, man, I mean, knock on wood, pat myself on the back, but I killed it in terms of, you know, had a short amount of time, asked three good relevant questions and got good answers out of him. Bless him for answering those questions because <laughs> I don't know how much it did for him, but it did a lot for me. Yeah. And I, I can't say, I will never deny that because my interview, you know, got it on ESPN. It got on Sirius XM radio. Uh, I think they played it on race hub way back then or speed or whatever, it was back then. And that certainly got some people's attention in the speed world, the Fox, you know, pre Fox and all that. It, it was like, why does he have that? And we don't, mm-hmm. you know, it was that kind of attitude. And so I, I give full credit to Jeremy Mayfield helping me out and answering questions for me that day, yeah. because uh, that day I was on it and it got me noticed on the NASCAR world, which got me, you know, the, the, the Twitter following, you know, starts right. getting better and all that stuff. And it was, it was one of the many, it was a huge domino to fall in my life. Cause he didn't know that to you. He didn't know it to anybody to say anything. No, and not at all. It was completely random. And it's not like you like bombarded him or anything, but it no. just, I mean, it was really good timing. Don't get me wrong, but it also, I think like your background in news definitely probably gave you an upper hand in that because you asked good, quick, succinct, efficient questions. And it wasn't really a thing where you were like out to get him. You just wanted to hear from him because nobody had. So Mm -hmm. it was one of those things where you were at the right place at the right time. You laid the groundwork, you prepped correctly. And I guess Jeremy was in a good mood that day and felt like talking. Yeah. And that's, what's so weird. I mean, it's just like half empty, half full. It just depends on how you look at life. Right. Like I'd spent entire 
I felt like a lifetime preparing for that moment, right? To be prepared for that moment. But if he, if we leave, if I clean up three minutes faster, that moment never happens, right? Like how weird is life? Like if that moment never happens, much of my life maybe never happens after that. Yeah. So I don't know what, how to even wrap your head around that is that how much you can prepare. All you can do is prepare to take advantage of those moments, right? Those big moments is be as prepared as possible. And that's what you can plan for because if that Mayfield moment doesn't happen, my whole life may indeed be vastly different. And that almost sucks to think about because I put in so much hard, we all put, you know, you put in so much effort into your life and work. And if one random ass moment doesn't happen, yeah. it's all different. Like that, that almost sucks to think about, but you try to think of it in a positive way yeah. is that all the prep work you did in preparation for a moment like that mm-hmm. to be ready for it. And I was, uh, I, I try to stay positive in that aspect of things. I don't know who said it. Maybe it was Richard Childress. Maybe it was like some other sports figure, but I think Austin Dillon quoted them in saying luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I can't yep. think of a better example than that right there. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Thank you. Uh, let's move on a little bit, but before we do, I saw that you recently posted something on Twitter from time hop and, uh, we talked about shithead. That's a great story. I don't know the story behind the creepy masturbator, but I think I definitely oh, want to hear more. Uh, again, a- another local news. Uh, <laughs> I- unfortunately I've come up with like, just, I've come across many creepy sex offenders. You'll get that. I though. guess you just do. Yeah, you do that. I mean, that, again, I'm, that's how I met my wife at a creepy sex offender story, <laughs> uh, sex offender type story. Uh, I did one in Evansville where a guy was pleasuring himself in the men's belt section of a oh Marshall's. And, and then he went over to a woman's um, beauty supply store. And I, I kid you not, the lady, the cashier who had to witness this, her name was Mandy Dickman. And the drive and the officer that arrested this guy was Officer Hands. Like I, I swear all of this is true. And so it's like ridiculous. that was a great story. Yeah. Mandy Dickman and <laughs> the masturbator. Hands. I mean, it was yeah, it was unbelievable. So then fast forward to Charlotte, and there uh I mean scary story. This 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 lady files a police report. So someone broke in while she was sleeping, breaks into her apartment, and she wakes up and at the foot of her bed. This guy is, I mean, he's going to town on himself in, you know, in the middle of the night. Oh my! And God. yeah, it's very scary. Fortunately, I mean, he, I mean, he didn't do anything crazier than that. But he did. Uh, he, he left some evidence. We'll say on <laughs> leaves evidence on the lady's uh, blanket. And, I understand. Yeah, and so we do the story with her. And during this, this is where it gets super crazy. Uh, that's where the tweet comes from because he may have struck again is that so the original victim we interview this nice lady <laughs> instead of burning the blanket right instead of just throwing it out she goes and has it dry cleaned <laughs> she takes it to the dry cleaner right and it's like oh my like why oh my goodness so then so she takes it to the, she she happens to mention that a day later she calls me back frantically and says alan you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what? She's like, I went to get my blanket from the dry cleaner and my dry cleaner said, then they're in the same, you know, they're in the same vicinity. She says, my dry cleaner said someone came and before they opened up the, the business the morning, this random guy sounds like the same person knocks on the window and 
starts pleasuring himself outside the dry cleaner. So that's when I tweeted, it looks like the creepy masturbator has struck again. So I interviewed, <laughs> I, I went back to the same neighborhood. I go to the dry cleaner. And I interview her, I get the whole story. It's traumatic and all this stuff. And the moral of the story is they've never caught the guy. And I still use that dry cleaner to this day. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah, you come across some good stuff in, in, in the news. News is, like I said, the best reality show out there. Yes, it is. Wow. That, that... I also, that's when I learned, I said masturbate on television. And I got a harsh note from our boss that says, Capital letters. We do not say masturbate on television. Guess you learned the hard way. No pun intended. Yeah, you learned there. the hard way. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, we cannot end there. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> so let's just quickly run through. You you end up moving to NASCAR.com in 2012. You did the preview show there, Race Center yep. Extra. Did a lot of stuff for the digital team. And I think you were kind of like one of the first people. I don't know if to call you a guinea pig would be fair, but you were one of the first forward-facing people for NASCAR digitally, like on camera. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. that that was fun. It, it was. I mean, that was that was an interesting step because they, and again, all this built, like, right, all the work that I've done, we've been through it, right? Um, Joplin, Evansville, Charlotte, Mayfield, all this stuff. It, you know, being on Twitter, the NASCAR world, all this stuff. Uh, that that got me into the ether, right? That got me yep. into the at least the bubble or people the conversation. People knew who I was, uh, be, be, whether it be because of Twitter, because of Jeremy Mayfield, or because I would drive myself to the track and cover all these races on Twitter, if you will. Yeah, people knew who I was. So when NASCAR.com bought its when NASCAR bought its rights back for NASCAR.com, they were going to start a video team. Like this wasn't known, right? I mean, no one this job didn't even exist. Right. So. They end up, they reach out to me. Like I get a call from HR saying, this is so-and-so from NASCAR. We're starting this thing. We can't really explain it because it doesn't exist. Would you be interested? And I was like, hell yeah. And, uh, it, but it was the only, I mean, it, it would involve me not being on television anymore. And that, that was a big step, right? Or that was a, an interesting step, but involved me being in the NASCAR world, being still on camera, on the internet. Again, 2013, it's different time. It's, yeah, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but you know, just video, the way we consume video, yeah. it wasn't as prevalent as it was yeah. now. So you wouldn't even think twice to be a, you wouldn't think differently of internet TV or stories on there like you do now. But back then it was like, is anybody going to see this, all this stuff? Is it a risk? But you know, it involved me being in the NASCAR world full time, right? Going to races, covering them all. And so it wasn't a hard decision whatsoever, but uh, it was an interesting decision, and then that worked out, and uh, and then yeah, it just took off from there. It was neat. It did. Need to be a part of something new. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure that there were a lot of kinks to work out, but at the same time, you had a lot of unique opportunities, specifically working for the sanctioning body. So that all worked out well. And then a, a few years later, you moved to Fox Sports 2015. Your title was not Utility Man, but I feel like you were Utility Man of sorts because. You've done, you did a lot of stuff from pit reporting, driver essays, like I mentioned, a bunch of different segments. And I wrote creativity down in my notes because I think a lot of the things that you did for them were very creative. And I think of the ride to work segment, which I really loved. I think of the stuff that you did in driver's houses when you guys were like cooking some meals, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there was, food. <laughs> yeah. Like there was a lot of different creative angles that you were able to do that. I personally hadn't seen before, and I thought that it was a really, really cool way 
for Fox specifically to stand out amongst the rest in terms of NASCAR coverage. And that was because of you. Um, and then, you know, this past year, you patrolled the absolute living crap out of pit road for the truck <laughs> series, like killed it. Absolutely killed it. Everybody's told you that, but it's true. Um, and I think the main takeaway, and we can kind of end on this note is the moments that you experience in that specific role. And I think about two specific ones. Um, and I think it, it may be one of the prevalent pictures on Twitter. Maybe, I don't know, but the moment that you shared at Daytona, which feels like a lifetime ago in February with Jordan Anderson, after that photo finish, like the joy on his face, the joy on your face, because you're enjoying what you're doing and you're just living in the moment. And then his interview, um, and I think you like tweeted something the morning after, like nobody's had a better day than this guy. Like just listen yeah. to this. And it's that it's like that moment stands out to me specifically for the year and for you as a pit reporter, because that is where like you shine, which is capitalizing oh, thanks, on the man. big moments. And that was a really big one for a driver that not a lot of mainstream people would know, but you could really sense the magnitude of that specific moment for him. Yeah, a great moment. And again, yeah, it's still my pinned video on Twitter. That's what uh, it is, yeah. I love that. I love that people got good pictures out of that. And you're right. I mean, you described it very well, just in terms of the emotion. It was Jordan Anderson mm -hmm. who doesn't run up front a lot, and he damn near won the race. But even in second place, you could just tell it was a banner day in his life, and especially in his career. Yeah. And go back and watch the video. I think I say about six words, and then he takes it for the next two and a half minutes, right? I do very little. So we in that talked moment, about you, but you. You cut it down. Cut down those hundred yeah. words. Yeah, and because you just wanted to get the emotion out of him, yeah. and uh, yeah, quick. And I barely asked a question because uh, it, it was just the reaction that I wanted to get out of him. Because look, I'm at the heart of it. I will always be a race fan, and, and that I, I took that approach because I was yeah. watching it as a racing fan. Right. Just like I said now, I mean, he nearly won final corner, hundredth of a second. That's that's how I toss it to him, if you will, because it was just like, oh, so close, hundredth of a second. Yeah. It's like, well, what do you say to that? It was just implied, and he said plenty, and uh, I didn't have to do much on that one. That The stories tell themselves, yeah. but that, that was an easy one. Another moment that I think of is, uh, and you talked about it with Andrew and Jason, but um, you know, being at the track during COVID must be a, a crazy experience, and we don't have time to chat about that, unfortunately. But the bounty, when it was claimed by Chase Elliott in the truck series at Charlotte, and again, like crazy timing, you're like, this is a moment in time. I want to snap a picture of it to remember it. And the second that you hold your phone up to take the selfie is when Chase is completing the bow that Kyle Busch usually does. And it's one of those things where it's like, that is a moment that you will never forget. Yeah, it, and it isn't. And it's something I didn't even notice until much later. That, that was the coolest right. part because uh, being the only one there, I had to run and go talk to Kyle Busch. So, I mean, that, that snap of a moment is really truly just a quick moment because I had to run and do other interviews because right. I was the only pit reporter down there. Yeah. And uh, so to go back and look at it later, I was like, oh my God, he's doing the bow and just turned into a cool picture. And again, that was, we were fairly new back to racing. That might've been the first truck race. So that, that okay, was new. Yeah. Um, we were all getting used to the, I mean, the, the being back from COVID was still so fresh so I wanted to capture, it was my first time obviously there at the racetrack during COVID, uh, you know, wearing a mask, all the, no fans, all this weird stuff. So I just wanted to capture that moment. First time I'd done the interview at the start finish line. Mm -hmm. That's not something Fox did really. 
Um, and, and so all this little stuff, I want to capture just the moment in time of where we were living, if you will. And I also happened to capture him doing that bow. So that was really cool. That was yeah. a memorable picture for me. It's uh, again, it just captures the moment in, in time and really neat stuff. Literally a snap in time. And it was the perfect snap of a picture. That was, yeah. uh, it was good timing. All right. Um, and if you remember that, I mean, the, the post to that, remember if you, I had to go run and get Kyle Bush yeah. who finished a disappointing second, he's never fun when he's <laughs> finished a second. Not many drivers are, but uh, the controversy after that was we didn't air it right away. If you remember, because yes. he swore, he said, I think he dropped an F bomb yeah. or something. So it had to be edited. So a lot of people were, uh, they were just up in arms like, oh, they didn't, you know, Fox didn't show it or, you know, because some people just assumed that Kyle Busch yeah. ran off and we he didn't want to interview with us. And and he's like, no, we did it. Just Fox didn't show it. And then we had to say, well, we didn't show it because you said a bad word. Yeah. So we're trying to edit it. And uh, so it was just a big misunderstanding. But that was the that was the post to that story. Yeah. Isn't that when he like basically was like, we got some stuff to figure out at the shop, like we got it figured out. And he, I think he dropped an F-bomb. That was the problem. Yeah, I definitely remember the F-bomb, and uh, so you never, yeah, it happens. Yeah, all right. Um, we didn't even get to positive regression. We didn't even get to David Smith being, like, the most underappreciated person in NASCAR. Didn't even get to Rusty Wallace, the cool Jeff oh. Gordon diecast picture that you tweeted out. Um, we didn't get to a lot of things, but that will be for another time. My last question, and I don't think I've ever asked you this, your Twitter header is at Copacavana with – like written on a school bus or something. Um, yeah, man. Where did that come from? Like, is that, is that real? Oh yeah. That, uh, I've won a school bus race at Charlotte motor speedway. You they did. Do them at the, oh yeah. Come on. I'm 1997 new England champion. You think I can't handle a school? Well, bus? obviously no. I know you can handle. I just didn't know that it happened. <laughs> no. I clearly didn't do enough. Oh, research. No, they happen every year. The, uh, the summer shootout, which is an awesome, yeah. awesome family friendly event that they do here in Charlotte. Uh -huh. That's where a lot of these young drivers start off. It's, it's a lot of fun in the summer. It really, really is. Uh, but to draw some extra attention, sometimes the, the speedway puts on school bus races. And so every week, like sometimes it's like, it's, it's local pastors that race. Sometimes uh -huh. it's local school principals. And then one time a year it's, uh, it, it's news people, it's local media people, sports people or what have you, whoever wants to do it, uh, gets, they have a school bus race in the bull ring at Charlotte motor speedway. And yeah, one year I won and got a big trophy. And, and that picture is when I was getting taken out by somebody. I had no idea that was a thing. Wow. Oh, yeah. Scariest thing. Probably scariest thing I've ever done. I wouldn't do it again. But uh, it's just, I don't know. I, I can't handle it because they, they tip really easy, those school buses. I was going to so say, yeah. If, if you want to win, you got to get up on like two wheels. And uh, so I, I have the victory. I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Well, uh, that can be your 101st trophy. And if you have the trophy still, <laughs> that should also go in your new office. Oh, yeah, it's right next to me. Okay. It's pretty big. Good. Glad we got that under control. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much, man. This has been a thrill for me. I wanted to have you on for a while, as we said, and uh, I've been a fan of yours for a while, and now it's nice to develop a friendship and a professional relationship with you. Thank you for thank you for not not only just coming on, but just being a friend and, and just having you know a voice you know for me just to vent to or to ask advice for. And it's been nice to, to get to know you a little bit better. I hope the people listening have gotten to know you a little bit better as well. And I know that whatever whatever you got in your plate for 2021, in addition to positive regression and everything else, I know it's going to be great and you're going to kill it. So I sincerely thank you for that. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been fun seeing you. You climbed the ladder as well, and I, I hope you have uh, big things that are coming as well. You're, you're putting in the hard work, and that's the first step. So that's a good point. Go Bills. Go Bills, baby. <laughs> and we're back.
Hope you enjoyed that chat with Mr. Kavana. Again, didn't even get into a lot of the things that I wanted to touch on, but hopefully there'll be a time or two this upcoming year where we can be at the racetrack together, safely, in person, and we can make that conversation happen because Alan's a cool guy. He's got a lot of fun stories to tell, as you heard by evidence of that episode. And uh, I feel like we're only scratching the surface. So, Alan, thank you very much. Hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Now, let's close out the show. What do you say? Love that's of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. A little bit more to hit on this week than we did last week. Silly season news keeps on a rolling. Anthony Alfredo and Michael McDowell are going to make up the front row motorsports lineup for the Cup Series this upcoming season. Alfredo obviously is replacing John Hunter Nemechek. McDowell is officially returning. He was expected to, but now that is official. And also, David Reagan is going to run in the Daytona 500 in a 36 car for front row. We had him on a couple weeks back. He kind of teased running again, and we figured that would happen. So David Reagan will be in the Daytona 500 for the second year in a row, just that one race. Chris Monez, who was previously announced as Kyle Larson's spotter at Hendrick Motorsports, is no longer with Hendrick Motorsports after somebody dug up some tweets that he had liked relating to the QAnon conspiracy theory, and it just was not a good look all around. So Chris Monez no longer with Hendrick Motorsports, but I do want to make clear that drivers hire their spotters. They are employees of the organization, yes, because they are technically working for the driver who works for it, but they're hired directly by the driver. So I don't know officially if he was a Hendrick Motorsports employee, but he was with HMS, obviously not anymore. Jill Gregory, who currently is a former, (laughs) currently is a former, currently is a NASCAR executive, will be a former NASCAR executive come February 1st because she was named the general manager and executive VP of Sonoma Raceway in Northern California. She has some roots in NoCal, and she's going to be heading back there. She becomes the second female to oversee a Cup Series facility, joining Julie Giese of Phoenix Raceway. I've never met Jill or worked with her, but I've heard glowing reviews across the board about her work ethic and just her as a person in general. So excited to see what she can do out in Sonoma. Speaking of Julie Giese and Phoenix Raceway, they're going to host a limited capacity of fans for their spring date, and obviously Daytona and Homestead being in the wild, wacky state of Florida, where they have no restrictions, it feels like, they're going to host a limited amount of fans as well. So the first, uh, I guess you could say, four races of the season, Daytona, Daytona, Homestead, and Phoenix, will host a limited amount of fans. That'll wrap things up for episode 89 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you, if you like what you heard, please do me a favor. Leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. We should be available there for your consumption. And before we go today, I actually want to share an announcement with you guys. As this episode is coming out, or maybe after you're listening to this, you probably have already seen uh, I announced on Twitter that I got a job kind of part-time job with Sirius XM NASCAR radio as an associate producer. I'm super hyped for it. Uh, It's in DC, so right in my backyard. Figured why not throw my name in the hat for it. And the team over there, led by Daniel Norwood and Dominic DeFrucio, they do an amazing job, and I was privileged enough to know them for a little bit beforehand. And I'm really excited to join the team as an AP part-time. So 
I don't know if you'll be hearing me on air a lot, but you will definitely be hearing some of my work in the coming months, weeks, years, hopefully. So thank you guys for all the support, all the love. I really do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And hopefully if you don't listen to SiriusXM NASCAR Radio Channel 90 now, you will now that I'm going to be working on it. But until next time, podcast isn't changing at all. I'm still doing my stuff at Front Stretch and NBC Sports Washington, but this podcast will always have a special place in my heart. And we're going to be back next week with another great guest from the NASCAR world. Peace and love, my dude and dudettes. Catch you on the flip side.